Well, I have a small confession to make. I absolutely love fantasy kingdom movies and shows. You know, like things along the lines of Arthurian legend, Camelot, Knights of the Round Table. I love those kinds of movies and those kinds of shows. They're just so exciting to me. In fact, uh, just last night, I restarted watching the Lord of the Rings trilogy, uh, specifically the extended editions, because that is the only way to watch the Lord of the Rings. But that trilogy, every single time I watch it, just gets me so amped and so pumped and just like, this is awesome. Like, wouldn't it be really cool to live in an age that was just like this? I don't know. To me, it is just a really cool thing to watch and to experience. But there's this one moment in the first movie, in the Fellowship of the Ring, and all the main characters have gathered together at council uh, in uh, in the this place of the elves, right, in the, the castle of the elves, and they're sitting there and they're talking, and one of the leaders of the people of men, of the race of men, stand up and start talking about how they want to wield the one ring for their own power. They want to utilize it against the enemy of evil. And another character kind of stands up, humble, meek, and he starts saying why we can't use this ring of power against the one who created it. And then that other leader of men responds, what in the world does a ranger know about these things? To which one of the elves stands up and says, this is no mere ranger. He is Aragorn, son of Arathorn. You owe him your allegiance. And that leader of men responds, Aragorn, this is Isildur's heir? And then the elf responds, the heir to the throne of Gondor. Meaning that he was to be the heir of all the race of men. He was the king to which this one leader of men owed all of his allegiance. Because Aragorn was in fact to be king. That, every single time, it doesn't matter how many times I watch that movie, I just get so pumped in that one little scene of hearing who Aragorn is. This is the very first time we get to hear who he is. We've seen him for about an hour of time in the movie already, but then we learn his true identity as heir to the throne of men. And it just, it makes me think about the rule, the power, the presence that kings have and how they rule with with authority and majesty and presence and a lasting effect of, of glory. I think that all that I just said can be summed up into one overriding term. Sovereignty. Sovereignty. And so as we return to our 
Character of God series. We've already discussed how God is immutable, unchanging, that he cannot be better or worse than he already is. He is already perfect in all of his ways. He's an unchanging God. We've already talked about his transcendence. He is other than his creation. He is outside of it and beyond it in his entire being. There is nothing that can compare to him because he is infinite and all other things are finite compared to him. And yet in his otherness last week, we explored his imminence. That God is not just a God that wants to be separated from his creation, but he wants to be intimately involved in his creation. And we started to unpack and see these things about how God not just wants to be involved in it, he has a particular interest in his people, in his children, in in those that he has called unto himself. He is particularly interested in being involved in their life, which by extension means that he wants to be intimately involved in our lives. Because we are His. He has called us His. And so, today we turn to our thematic passage again in Exodus 34. But before we turn there, if you want to go ahead and open your Bibles, if you have the, your own Bible or a pew Bible, you can open to page 40, because we're going to really be opening up to Genesis chapter 45. But first, let us revisit our passage in Exodus this morning. And it reads like this. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for Thousands forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. You might be wondering how in the world do we arrive at sovereignty from that passage? In no way in place does God actually say, I am the sovereign God. And yet, We read four times in this passage, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. You see, actually, I don't want to mislead you because actually the way that it is translated in Scripture, the Hebrews, the the Jewish people would actually take any time they saw the name God, God's given name, in the Scripture, they would actually make it the Lord. They would change it to Adonai. And so anytime you actually open your Bible and you see the Lord written, if the Lord is written L-O-R-D in lowercase cap or in upper caps, right, and and everything is in caps, then you know that that is actually the name of God being used in that place. And then the Lord, if it's L, capital L, and then lowercase O-R-D, then that's the actual word Lord being used in Scripture instead of the name of God. 
But let me bring that up because I want us to make sure that we understand that what we're reading in our passage in Exodus is actually the name of God, but it's been substituted. And we substitute it because we acknowledge the pure sovereignty of who God is, that his name is ineffable, meaning it's inexpressible to completely comprehend and understand the name of God, that it is completely and utterly holy. And so to even utter the name of God is difficult for one to do because our lips are unclean lips. And so we see this name of God written in Exodus four times, this title of God, the Lord, the Lord Adonai. And so it is in that title that we see God's sovereignty expressed in our thematic passage. In fact, he even says it about himself. His very opening quote is, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. He he says it twice. He's emphasizing the importance of his sovereignty among the people. And so as we dive into this word, I want us to understand what sovereignty is. And we're going to turn once again to one of my favorite authors who you've heard multiple times already in this series. A.W. Tozer in his book, Knowledge of the Holy, says this about God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty is the attribute by which he rules his entire creation. And to be sovereign, God must be all-knowing all-powerful, and absolutely free. The reasons are these. Were there even one datum of knowledge, however small, unknown to God, his rule would break down at that point. To be Lord over all creation, he must possess all knowledge. And were God lacking one infinitesimal modicum of power, the lack would end his reign and undo his kingdom. That one stray atom of power would belong to someone else and God would be limited, a limited ruler, and hence not be sovereign. Furthermore, his sovereignty requires that he be absolutely free, which means simple, that he must be free to do whatever he wills to do anywhere at any time to carry out his eternal purpose in every single detail without interference. Were he less than free, he must be less than sovereign. Honestly, I'm not sure that there is a clear definition ever given about what sovereignty means than in those three short paragraphs. That God must be all-knowing because if there is even a single bit of information that God does not have about his creation, then he can't be sovereign over it because there is something about his creation that he doesn't know. That would be insane to think about. Like, Honestly, if I want to be a great mechanic, in fact, be the best mechanic, I have to know the inner workings of my car to the utmost, and there can't be a single thing about my car that I cannot know, otherwise my car would rule over me. 
because then it would win. Because if there was a part of it that broke that I didn't have information about and there was no way for me to know about it, then that car wins. But God's creation cannot win against him because there is no bit of information that he does not already have about it. And the same is said about his power. I mean, just think about even thinking about power in the scenario where I'm talking about the Lord of the Rings, right? Everyone is vying for power because there is none that has ultimate power. Some power has been given up to one person or another person, and so fighting begins here and there, and the winner and the outcome constantly goes back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. What an exhausting existence or reality that that would be if God was not unlimited in his power. And lastly, he has to be absolutely free, free in every regard that nothing can interfere with God's will in creation. If he wants it to happen, it's going to happen. Nothing can stop it. It is an unstoppable force. God is an unstoppable force. And so if God wasn't free to do whatever he want, wanted to do, then he wouldn't be sovereign. Because that means that something or somebody could stop or thwart the will of God. Wow. God is sovereign in his knowledge because he is all-knowing, sovereign in his power because he's all-powerful, and sovereign in his will because he is completely free. And so in order to unpack this today, we're going to look at the story of Joseph, son of Jacob, in Genesis. And so let us go ahead and read our passage in Genesis 45, and we're going to be specifically looking at verses 1 through 15. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him. For they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in these lands for two years and they are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve you, a remnant on the earth, and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down, to, come down to me. Do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks and your herds and all that you have. There I will provide for you. For there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see 
and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all of his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. Let's pray. Lord, in the hearing of this passage this morning, I pray that our hearts would be open open to receive, open to hear, Lord, open to know what it means to have a sovereign God. God, that we would see your power on display in this passage. We would see your knowledge on, in, on display in this passage and your freedom on display. Lord, you are at work in your creation, but specifically you're at work through your sovereign rule in our lives and in your working therein. And so, Lord, I pray that this morning, we would come to a better knowledge of who you are. God, that we would have clear eyes to see what it is that you do in our life. And God, that we would be open to giving you more control when there are still areas where we think that we have firm grasp. But we would open our hands and say, God, I want your sovereign rule. I want your will. And so will you do it? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, before we really dive in, I want to give you a little bit of backstory as to Joseph. And I'm sure many of you know Joseph's story, but I want to just share it just in case there are some bits and pieces that you forgot or maybe you had never heard before. But first and foremost, we have to know that Joseph is the firstborn to Rachel. Uh, Rachel is actually the wife who Jacob loves the most. In fact, when he was being sent into uh, Hebron in order to find a wife uh, from Laban, uh, his mother's brother, uh, it was Rachel who he fell in love with. It was Rachel that he worked seven years to marry, only to be tricked by his father-in-law uh, and to be given Leah, the older daughter, as his wife. But then Laban made an agreement with Jacob and said, well, if you work for me seven more years, I will give you Rachel also. And so uh, Jacob agreed to that and received Rachel also as his wife and then worked seven more years for Laban in order to fulfill that promise. And so Rachel is really the wife that Jacob loves. And so what we learn is that J Joseph is actually the second to last born son of Jacob. There's only one other son born after Joseph, and that's his younger brother, Benjamin, who was also born to Rachel. And so Joseph was born to the woman that, that Jacob loved, which ended up meaning that Joseph received all of his father's affection. In fact, the scripture says that, that Jacob loved Joseph more than any of the others because he was his son in old age. I don't think it was because of his old age, it's because he loved Rachel. But we'll, we'll go with that. But either way, the point of the story is, Joseph was the most beloved son, the most beloved son of his father, Jacob. And you can imagine that that caused a lot of tension between the rest of the brothers. 
right? To know, if, if I was to find out, like actually find out that my sister was the more loved child of my parents, I think that might create within me quite an interesting complex. You know, I might be wondering, um, yeah, that's not okay. I wonder how I can gain more affection. I wonder how I can get my parents to love me more. Well, I think the best option would be I should just kill my sister, right? I mean, if you really want to get the affection, you should just kill the other sibling. I mean, honestly, that's what, that's what Cain did to Abel, right? He wasn't getting the right affection from God. So he was like, well, I'm just going to kill Cain and then, or kill Abel, and then God will have to accept my offering, right? Well, the brothers of Joseph had that same idea. They started plotting and scheming and like, we should just kill him. If we kill him, then, then dad will love us. And so they started plotting and scheming, and one of the brothers stands up, and he's like, no, we, we cannot kill him. But let's, let's put him in a pit and just leave him there, and that way we're not responsible if he dies. Seems like a great idea. Perfect. We're just going to throw him in a pit and forget about him and say, huh, dad, we lost him along the way, you know? And so that one brother actually goes away for a little bit, and then all the other brothers are like, okay, well, Reuben is gone. You know, we heard his idea, but look, we see slave traders coming down the, the road here. Look, let's sell Joseph into slavery. That is such a better idea. In fact, let's take the coat that dad made for him of many colors. Let's take that. Let's dip it in some goat blood. And then we'll return that to, to dad and say, look, the wolves got him. You know, he was trying to defend the shepherd. You know, he was a shepherd trying to defend the sheep. And, you know, they, he died on the way. But, in fact, they really sold him into slavery and he's off into Egypt. And so that's what his, his brothers do is they sell him to these slave traders, and these slave traders end up in Egypt where Joseph gets sold to Potiphar. And while he's in the house of Potiphar, he becomes respected because he's, he's wise in his ways, and he becomes powerful in the house of Potiphar, who, mind you, is part of the court of Pharaoh. However, this story transcends to a moment where Potiphar's wife wants to sleep with Joseph. Okay, story just got weird, right? So Potiphar's wife wants to sleep with Joseph, and Joseph's like, no, like, my master has given me to be over everything in this house, and there is nothing that he has withheld from me except you. And I am not going to take you Man, Joseph is a good guy. But Potiphar's wife ends up scheming against him and crying that he defiled her. And so Potiphar comes home and sends Joseph to prison. And of course, he doesn't just end up in any prison. He ends up in the royal prison because Potiphar is a part of the court of Pharaoh. And when those on the court of Pharaoh have crimes committed against them, they don't just go to regular jail. They go to big bad jail. And so that's where Joseph goes. He goes to big bad jail, the, the royal imprisonment. And there he stays for who knows how long. We really don't know how long Joseph was in prison for. At, at minimum, he was there for two years. At minimum, two years. 
but it could have been longer. We really don't know. But there's one more thing that I want to cover. I need to jump back a little bit, a, a, a special trait of Joseph. You see, Joseph isn't just a normal son, not just a normal kid, but at 17 years old, God is doing works of wonders by speaking to him through dreams. Joseph is a prophetic dreamer. And so there's this moment in Genesis chapter 37. I just want to read this real quick. It said, now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. Then he said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. Then behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. And his brother said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and his words. And then he dreamed another dream. And he told it to his brothers and said, behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun and the moon and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Man, I love that last little part. There's a part of Jacob that hears Joseph's dream, and he's like, I wonder if God is really at work to do something. He kept it in mind. He didn't just let it go to the wayside and say, that is completely absurd. And, and really, the reality is that there are things that God promises in Scripture, and, and we have to hold God to them. We have to say, God, we know that these are your promises, so we know that they're going to work out, right? This, again, goes back to his sovereign rule. And so... Joseph is in Egypt, and he's a dreamer, and he's in this royal prison. And all of a sudden, an opportunity arises where he has to interpret a dream. And so Joseph actually interprets the dreams of Pharaoh. And Pharaoh appreciates and sees the gifting that God has given Joseph to such an extent that Pharaoh raises him up to second in command of all of Egypt. There is no one under Joseph except Pharaoh himself. What a testimony. And so we turn and see that in God's sovereignty, he is all-knowing. I want us to unpack those three parts of God's sovereignty as shown in our passage today. Now that we understand Joseph's story, where he's come from, now let's look at our passage today and see how God was at work through all of it. So in Genesis 45, 5 through 7, it says, And now do not be distressed or angry. This is Joseph speaking to his brothers. With yourselves because you sold me into slavery. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in this land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many 
survivors. Let's make so clear that what this passage is revealing is that God was not caught off guard about the famine that was coming to the land. God had a plan from the moment that Joseph was 17 years old and being sold into slavery by his brothers. God already knew that there was going to be a famine in the land and that there was going to be need, there was going to need, there was going to be this need for somebody that had all the wisdom to know how to get through it. There was going to There was this need for somebody that was going to be able to interpret the dream of Pharaoh so that he was even aware that there needed to be a place for someone to have the wisdom for them to get through famine. So in Joseph's life, God was already at work because of the knowledge that God had of events that were to come to pass. And that there would, be, there would be this need for somebody to help them get through what God already knew. God knew famine was coming. And God knew that there was going to be a need for somebody to plan exactly how to get through the famine. Not just for the people of Egypt, but primarily for God's chosen people. For Jacob's kin that they would have somehow some access to the food stores that were in Egypt. There had to be a means by which they were going to have access to those food stores in Egypt. And so God is in no way surprised by the famine that sweeps through all the region. He knew that he would need somebody in place among his covenant people with his knowledge and his wisdom to get them through. In fact, Psalm 147, we read it in our call to worship this morning, says this, that he determines the number of the stars and he gives all of them their name. That's, that's some knowledge, by the way, to know the numbers of the stars and to give them names. That requires an infinite knowing. And then it goes on, great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. It is beyond measure. There is no way that we could actually measure the things that God knows because God has an infinite capability of knowing. He is all-knowing. There's nothing that is beyond what he can know, whether it's in the past, in the present, or in the future. Jesus even speaks in the gospel about the end of days and how nobody knows except for the Father. He's the only one that has the knowledge of when the end should come. He is completely all-knowing. And therefore, he is sovereign. But notice, notice that in that psalm, that it says, great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. His knowing, in fact, gives way to his power. And so we see in his sovereignty that he is all-powerful. Verses 8 through 10 in our main scripture today from Genesis 45 says this, And so it was not you who sent me here, but it was God. 
He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord over all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all of Egypt. Come down to me and do not tarry. Remember what Tozer said. He said that one stray atom of power, if it could belong to someone else, then God would be a limited ruler and hence not sovereign. But even in this passage, we see how great God's power is. It wouldn't have been missed by the Hebrews, by the Jewish people to understand that the Egyptians thought, God, thought, the Egyptians thought Pharaoh as God, as a God, right? And yet here, God has power over Pharaoh because God can put into place a man of his choosing, a man of his people, of his covenant people. And he can put him into a place of power where Joseph even says, I don't want us to miss this. It says that he was made as father to Pharaoh. Joseph was made as father to Pharaoh. Not, not that Joseph, not that the Pharaoh was a father to Joseph, but Joseph was a father to Pharaoh, which means Pharaoh respected and listened to whatever Joseph would say. Joseph was given power, in a way, over Pharaoh, even though Pharaoh was ruler of all the land. What power God has to have in order to put whoever he wants in place into power. God is not a weak God who allows himself to be tossed to and fro. In fact, he has the power to establish kings and tear them down. He has the power to establish governments and tear them down. He has the power to establish rulers and tear them down. And here he has the power to install Joseph to second in command of all of Egypt to be considered father to Pharaoh. What a powerful God. In fact, Daniel chapter 4 verse 35 says this, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Nothing can stay the hand of God. That is the power of his sovereignty at work. But again, that passage in Daniel, notice it says, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? And so God's power gives way to his absolute freedom, right? And so he is absolutely free to do as he pleases. We're actually going to turn to Genesis chapter 50 for this last part because I think it's so beautiful. Uh, verses 19 through 21, Joseph says, But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for I am in the place... For am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. God's will is completely at work in the life of Joseph, in the life of his covenant people, and even in the life of the pagan Egyptians. 
God is completely free to do as he pleases. In every way, every short, uh, every way, there's no matter in which God is not free to execute his will in the life and work of his creation. He worked what was meant to be evil for good. He is free to even work in evil things to go toward the good of him and his glory. He is completely free in his will. And so here's what I want to kind of turn to. I want us to think about this in the context of Joseph's life, right? You see, Joseph's difficulties only proved, I think, to provide him with the necessary experience to ascend to power. We might think, well, if God was free in his will, then all that evil stuff wouldn't have had to happen to Joseph. And you're right, God takes no place in evil. But in the freedom of his will, he might use some things for the effect of growing and prospering his people. Because here's the truth, would, would Joseph have ever left home to go to Egypt if he wasn't sold into slavery? Probably not. Family meant everything to them. He was a shepherd among his people. There was no reason for Joseph to ever go to Egypt. Would he ever have known the Egyptian hierarchy and authority structure if, if he was not in Potiphar's house? Probably not. He wouldn't have gained necessary experience in order to understand the inner workings of power in Egypt if he wasn't put into that position as a slave, mind you. And yet, in that same means, he was put into Potiphar's house in order to be accused of doing something he didn't do, which landed him in the royal prison. A royal prison in which he would have access at some point to the ear of Pharaoh. Had he been in any other prison... That probably wouldn't have happened because the people that actually let him ascend to the place to speak to Pharaoh were two of the other royal servants that were imprisoned. And it was one of those servants that brought it to Pharaoh's attention. Oh, there's this guy that can interpret genes. He's in your jail. You should probably go get him. That's what happened. God's freedom of will encompasses the things that even we might consider bad for us as well as the good. And so I want us to take a moment. I want us to take a moment right now and go into just a little bit of moment of silence. And I want us to each ask ourselves within and ask the Lord to reveal places in our lives that maybe was meant for evil, but God turned to good. And so let's just go into the silence of our own hearts for a quick second and, and ask the Lord to reveal, where's a moment in my life, Lord, where maybe something was, was for evil, but you worked it for good in my life? Show to me where you were sovereign in my life.
Well, I hope that the Lord spoke to you something that, that maybe was meant for evil, but he turned to good, a, a way where God was at work in your life, revealing to you his sovereignty. I actually recall one specific thing in, in my life. There are so many that I could recount, but there was, there was one that was more significant than any other, and that was me coming to Christ. That's the most significant thing that's ever happened in my life where the enemy meant it for evil, but God meant it, brought it to good. You see, that, that moment in my life was my parents' separation. Uh, that, that was maybe the hardest thing that I've ever had to go through and, and witness and watch and be a part of personally. And, and by all means and all intents and purposes, that, that was a work of the enemy to bring evil into my life. And yet, if that hadn't have happened, I don't know that I would ever have come to Christ. Because it was through a series of events after that, that that everything that the enemy meant for evil, God worked for good. And that's how I became a Christian. It started with one thing that seemed so horrible. But God brought so much life from it. And so when I think about that, when I think about my, my coming to Jesus, I then have to think about, well, what is needed to be saved, right? What is the need? What, what do we have to do in order to be saved? Well, Romans 10, 9 says it pretty clearly. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Even in our confession of faith, it starts with the sovereignty of God. There's an acknowledgement of his sovereignty in our lives. And I clearly see how Jesus sovereignly worked in mine to bring me to him. We have to acknowledge his lordship. Philippians 2, 9 through 11, I'm going to end with this. Therefore, God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Good and, and gracious and sovereign God, it's my heart's desire that as we close this morning that you would work in our hearts and reveal to us your sovereignty, your lordship, what it means to actually submit to you as a servant of the Most High God. What it means to rightly acknowledge you as sovereign in our lives. To acknowledge Jesus as Lord. And Lord, it's my prayer that as we enter into this space, as we go out into the world, we would not miss where you are at work. Because you rule over your creation with all knowledge, all power, and all freedom. We love you, Lord. Amen.